Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9. I hope it is clear to you by now that we are about one thing and one thing only, the Lord Jesus Christ and Him exalted above all things. We are here in a, in a way to remind ourselves, we keep coming back every Sunday to remind ourselves of the greatness of the Lord and that we have nowhere else to go, nowhere else to go. There's only one place, the Lord Jesus. So let us read this morning in Acts 9, beginning in verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. I recently read the following, and I quote, According to various competing modern secular evolutionary views, history can really have no meaning, purpose, value, or direction. The floor of reality is chance, end quote. I wouldn't even want to imagine a world in which blind chance is in charge. Sadly, many in the first century Greco-Roman world lived like that. In the city of Ephesus alone, there was much of this going on. I have mentioned Tike before. Do you remember Tike? You don't remember Tike? Wow. Oh, good. Who was that? Good. All right. You get extra points. Tike was a goddess of Greek mythology, and her name means Lady Luck or Lady Fortune. It is even possible that the man with whom Paul sent his letter to the Ephesians, namely... Tychicus was named after her, which would explain how deeply ingrained this belief in fortune truly was. It should not surprise us then that in his opening chapter in the letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says that God chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. And that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And that God works all things together according to the counsel of whose will? His will. I think the reason why the Spirit inspired those words using Paul's pen, at least in part, was to take the goddess Tike 
this false idol, lift her up in front of everyone's eyes and smash her to pieces. Through these worldview-shaping words, the Spirit was communicating to these Ephesians and to us that there is no such thing as Lady Fortune. These opening words from the Apostle Paul removed every and all possibilities for any of them retaining this false notion. We, brothers and sisters, we believe in a personal God who deals with us directly and who is in charge of history. God is in charge of history. But Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, did not come to this conclusion on his own. He received this teaching directly from the Lord, and not only did he understand this intellectually, he had to learn it in his own lived experience, for he himself was chosen by Jesus himself. The course of his entire life was changed and determined by sovereign election. The book of Acts itself is a vivid picture of a history sovereignly created by God himself. The entire book of Acts is God creating history. With this in mind, I have no less than seven main points for you this morning. Are you ready for this? You're not getting lunch today, brothers. You're not going to eat lunch. It's going to be good. And so we have seven headings for you this morning, and we're going to smash Tikkei to pieces together, so join me as we do so. Here's the first thing we learn from verses 12, 10 through 12. Sovereign election moves history forward. Sovereign election moves history forward. Divine sovereignty, which is a reference to authority, that's sovereignty's authority, is not just a doctrine detached from the progress of history. Jesus is not ruling from the throne above without any concern for what happens here below. The opposite is true. It is the sovereign Jesus who has all authority, who moves history to its intended end. No Christian, no Christian should think of history as a random assortment of independent self-interpreting facts. Instead, we should think of history as having a purpose, a reason to be, and not random in the least. We see this in the calling of Ananias. His short story was sovereignly brought about. We don't know much about this man other than he was a disciple of Jesus, who was also known for his devotion to the Lord according to Acts chapter 22, verse 12. In fact, consider with me the contrast between Ananias and Saul. When Jesus appeared to Saul, his response was, Who are you, Lord? When Jesus appeared to Ananias, he simply said, here I am, Lord. Ananias knew his Lord. He didn't have to ask for a name because a disciple of Jesus recognizes the voice of his master. Just as, just as Jesus said in John 10, 14, my sheep know me. Moreover, we see Ananias' devotion and how he responded to division in verse 10. Here I am, Lord. As soon as he understood that Jesus was calling him, he made himself available. Disciples are always ready to serve. And here's the specific task assigned to Ananias. Get up, go to a specific street, to a specific house, to a specific man who already knows you're coming. Notice how how specific the command is. Jesus mentions the name of the street, straight, 
the name of the man who owns the house on that street, namely Judas, and the name of the man he's supposed to go talk to, namely Saul. Nothing is random. Nothing is random. You see, in the economy of divine sovereignty, nothing is ever random. The sovereignty of God goes down to the specifics, the details of our lives. Therefore, who is missing from this account? I've mentioned her already. A false god, an idol, take care. Yeah, no lady fortune here. She's not even in the picture. Now, here's the lesson. We must be mindful of God's sovereignty even in the details of our lives, even in the details of our lives. Notice that the end of this account is the restoration of Saul, which happens in verses 17 through 19. But everything prior to this restoration is guided by the powerful hands of Jesus from beginning to end. And this, my brothers and sisters, is wonderful knowledge. Prophet Isaiah Prophet Isaiah knew this very well. Hear these words from Isaiah chapter 46 Verses 8 through 10. Please don't miss these words. This is what Isaiah, God said through Isaiah. Remember this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. Remember, recall it to mind. What? You transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Listen to this. Declaring. The end, from where? From the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my, how, how much of his purpose? All my purpose. Did you hear that? We are called to remember, to recall to mind what? We must remember, we must call to mind that God declares the end from the beginning. We must call to mind, we must remember that he calls the end from the beginning. He doesn't just see history develop before his eyes. He declares history and it comes to be. That's sovereignty. And that's what's happening in the account of Ananias. Now, why must we remember God's sovereignty over all of history, including the details of your life? Oh, my friend, it is imperative. It is imperative. Consider and give careful attention to our next point. Sovereign election offends human sensitivities. Sovereign election offends human sensitivities. We are a Reformed church. I am Reformed. But I understand that sovereignty offends a lot of people. Consider verses 13 and 14. Here's how Ananias responded. As if he had a right to say this. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, Saul. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. If we could summarize verses 13 and 14, it would be three words. No way, Lord. No way, Lord. Is this a bad joke? Saul? Really? Of all the people, 
You want me to go talk to the guy who, as far as I know, wants me and all Christians either dead or in prison. And Ananias was offended. Offended by sovereign election. Think for a moment about Ananias' objection. It has two parts. First, Saul is evil, according to verse 13. Second, Saul has authority, according to verse 14. You see what's going on here? Ananias forgot about two critical attributes of the Lord Jesus. First, Ananias forgot about his grace, which I will deal with in a few moments. But second, Ananias forgot about Christ's sovereignty. Let me address that right now. In Ananias' words, recorded in verse 14, what did Saul have that was intimidating from the chief priest? Authority. (laughs) I like that. That was part of his objection. I don't want to go to Saul because he has authority. Saul is a man of authority. Remember, Lord? Have you forgotten? You, the creator of the universe? He could bind me and take me back to Jerusalem and have me thrown in prison. Lord, are you forgetting about this? My safety is on the line. In modern vernacular, we could say it like this. Jesus was the rock. Going to Saul was the hard place. And Ananias was right in between. He was literally between a rock and a hard place. But Ananias has forgotten something critical, which we often forget as well. What did Jesus say right before his ascension to heaven. Some authority has been given to me. Saul has part of it. I get the other half. That's not what he said. Here's a man who died, was placed in a tomb, broke the tomb open, came out with a brand new body, glorified and said, this man, this man, a human, a man, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given not to Saul, Ananias, but to me. Ananias, do you really want to talk about authority? This reminded me of the conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. Right before the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate says to Jesus, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless unless it had been given to you from above. Ananias had forgotten what true authority looked like. You see, he did not remember that God is the one who declares the end from the beginning. And this forgetfulness led to Ananias being offended. He didn't like sovereign election. So what's the lesson for us? Here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. If we are not mindful of sovereignty... If we are not mindful of sovereignty, we will be easily offended when the Lord does the unexpected. That's the lesson. And Ananias happily said, here I am, Lord, until the shock came. All he could think of was Saul's evil and Saul's authority. And Ananias had become forgetful. Likewise, my friends, if we are not recalling to mind over and over again that God declares the end from the beginning and that he is in charge of everything in between, both in world history and also our own history, personal history, then when in his sovereignty the Lord does the unexpected, when he sovereignly changes our plans, when he 
he sovereignly leaves us with unfulfilled dreams or when he sovereignly crushes our optimistic expectations, we can become offended, we can become angry, and we can become disappointed. And this, my friends, is one of the beauties of Reformed theology. Because among the doctrines that were recovered during the Reformation was the doctrine of divine sovereignty, which says this, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. Some time ago, while preaching through Ephesians, I said this, keep your eyes on Jesus while your eyes are dry so that you don't lose sight of him when they are full of tears. It is a similar truth being taught here. Get busy recalling to mind the truth that God declares the end from the beginning. Remember this constantly in your mind so that when the unexpected happens, you don't forget who is in charge or you end up raising your fist against God in anger or despair. We could say much about this, but let's go on with our text. Here we come to the meat of it all. Next points, sovereign election is a fact. Sovereign election is a fact. I love how patient the Lord is with Ananias, but how firmly he also corrects him by stating a simple yet undeniable fact. Ananias, go. In fact, it seems like the, in the original it's like, go away. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. In the mind of our, our Lord, the bottom line and the final and chief reason why Ananias must go to Saul is because of sovereign election. That ended the discussion. Saul was Christ chosen. Amazingly, all the details of the story from beginning to end, including Ananias' location in the city of Damascus, the house of Judas to which Saul was brought in order to recover, the vision given to both Ananias and Saul, etc., etc. All these details were sovereignly ordained by the Lord Jesus to bring about his intended end, which was to make of Saul something new. If you could see, if we could only see what God has done in your life, historically speaking, the places where he has taken you and the people that have come across your path to bring you to the knowledge of the truth, we would be amazed that he moves everything to accomplish his purpose in you. Therefore, the fact is very difficult to escape. Saul, the persecutor, did not become Paul the apostle by his own choosing. We saw this last week. He didn't want to become Paul the apostle. Saul became Paul by Christ choosing him. Saul never determined in his heart or mind to change the course of his own life. Rather, this was determined in the divine counsel. Thus, the story of the conversion of Saul and even of the calling of Ananias to go to speak to Saul were all the unfolding of an eternally decreed plan. So no, brothers and sisters, history is not random, but sovereignly decreed, guided, and applied by the hands of the Lord Jesus himself, who has authority in heaven and on earth and does as he pleases. He does what he pleases with the nations as well as in the lives of individuals. You and I are not randomly moving through life. We have a purpose sovereignly assigned to us. Here's the lesson. Sovereign election is not a doctrine to fight against, but to rest upon. Imagine for a moment if 
what would have happened if Ananias would have said, Lord, please tell me this is not true. Can you imagine if he would have continued the conversation with the Lord? Please tell me you did not choose Saul. Please tell me this is a bad joke. Thankfully, thankfully he did not. Ananias had heard enough from Jesus. Go, for I have chosen him just like I have chosen you to go talk to him and just like I have chosen Judas to be the host of this entire history-making moment. Ananias, history is my history. The world is my world. Judas, Saul, and you, you are all mine. Ananias understood this. So he lowered his head before majesty and did what what he was told. Sovereign election ends the discussion. Ultimately, Ananias rested upon the sovereignty of Jesus. Maybe his desires were still screaming against this plan. Maybe he didn't like it, but he submitted to it, and he went to Saul in faith. So let me say this. You can either be mad at God for his sovereign plans for you, or you, in humble submission, can ask him to give you the faith to accept his perfect and sovereign will for your life. Ananias submitted and went, but not without first forgetting something else. Let's see what else Ananias missed initially. Here's the next point. Sovereign election stems from grace, comes from grace, originates from grace. Going back to Ananias' initial objection, remember the first part of his objection, verse 13. Saul is what? He's evil. If in verse 14, he forgets divine sovereignty, in verse 13, Ananias forgets divine grace, which is similar to what happened to Jonah when called to preach repentance to Nineveh. Remember him? What did Jonah say? The Ninevites? Really? They are evil. They don't deserve to hear about your grace. Saul? Really? He's evil. He does not deserve to hear about your grace. Let me ask this. What did the Lord Jesus see in Saul that was so attractive? Let's see a few options here. Was it his beautiful hatred toward Christians that made him such a great candidate to become an apostle? Was it his religious arrogance, perhaps, that made him stood out as a model for apostleship? Obviously, I'm asking those questions almost rhetorically. They are so obvious that the answer is not necessary. The beauty of the account of how Saul the persecutor became Paul the apostle is this. It reveals the essence of sovereign grace. Later on in his life, Saul came to understand this better than anyone else. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Saul became a man overwhelmed by grace because he knew grace personally. Galatians 1. Let's hear out out of Saul's own mouth how he viewed his own calling as an apostle. This is truly remarkable for it exposes the heart of the apostle Paul and the heart of saving sovereign Grace, careful attention, please, as we read these words. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, and pay special attention to verse 15. Here's Saul, Paul, speaking. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Verse 15. 
But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and called me by what? By his grace. We could keep reading this beautiful testimony of Paul. We're going to stop right there. I want to point out three inescapable truths that come out of this text we just read. First, Saul was undeniably evil. He makes sure we know this. Second, Saul was set apart before he existed, meaning his purpose had been established prior to his birth. It was decided for him by sovereignty. And third, Saul was called by grace, meaning the only possible explanation as to why Saul became Paul was simply that God took pleasure in calling him to himself. God took pleasure in transforming him. God took pleasure in changing him. God took pleasure in restructuring his entire life. And God took pleasure in giving him a brand new ambition. If you love Jesus Christ this morning, it's because God has been good to you and he has transformed your life. Saul did not deserve it, but this is grace. Once again, I see the need to give you the definition of grace that I, I put together after studying Ephesians 1 in a sermon that I preached on September 1st, 2019. I don't do this very often at all, but if you have extra time this week, I would encourage you to go back to that sermon where I explain the following definition in more detail. Here's the definition of grace. Grace is the Christocentric favor of God, monergistically lavished upon wrath-deserving sinners for the purpose of transforming their life into an endless doxology. Did you memorize it? Grace is the Christocentric favor of God, monergistically lavished upon wrath-deserving sinners for the purpose of transforming their lives into an endless doxology. In brief... That definition goes hand in hand with Saul's conversion experience. Grace is the Christocentric favor of God as seen in the fact that Saul knew grace for the first time, for the first time in his life when Christ was revealed to him as Savior and Lord. Grace opened his eyes to this life-changing reality of who Christ is. Before then, he was an enemy of God, but then Jesus became everything to Saul. That's the work of grace. But grace is monergistically lavished. What is monergism? Is the opposite of? I love love that. It's, It's so beautiful. Synergism, right? Synergism. Grace is not the product of God and men working together. Grace is from God and from God alone. He gives grace monergistically. It is his sovereign choice. He gives it, which is proven beyond a shadow of doubt, by the next section of our definition, he gives it to wrath-deserving sinners. Raise your hand if you don't think you deserve... No, actually, don't raise your hand. But that's literally what Saul was, wasn't he? He was a wrath-deserving sinner. He deserved the anger of God. And he makes sure that we know it. Saul wanted to destroy. Saul deserved hell, but he was given grace. Let me ask you this, my friend. Without going any further, do you see yourself? Do you see yourself? Not the person next to you. That's easy to do. Do you see yourself as a wrath-deserving and hell-bound person? Maybe you don't. 
And maybe you would answer that question by saying this, no, actually, I see myself as a pretty good person. To which I would respond, in love, that's precisely what makes you wrath-deserving and hell-bound. Because no one is good. Not even one. Romans 3.10. If that's you this morning, you are in a most dangerous place. You must come to the end of yourself. You must stop pretending as if you are good and you must acknowledge your sin before God. On the other hand, if you are aware of your sin and the load of your sin seems to be crushing your very soul, then don't delay another minute. Come to the Lord Jesus this morning. Upon the cross, he himself carried our sins. He did it so that you could be free. Why? Why in the world would Jesus, the risen and exalted Lord, come to Ananias and send him to Saul, who was such a great sinner, an evil man? Jesus did that. Jesus did that because Jesus himself died for Saul. That's the beauty of this. And Saul, upon knowing this, he was overwhelmed with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving and boldness. So I want to tell you this, my friend, if you are not a believer this morning, but you know yourself to be a sinner, even a great sinner, then come to Jesus by faith. Believe on him today. And if you say to me, you know what? I have way too much sin in my life. There's no way I can come. I would answer this. Don't add to your sin by underestimating the value and the sufficiency of what Jesus has accomplished for you on the cross. Don't add more to your sin by saying, I don't think he is enough. He is. He died for Saul. He died for sinners. Stop debating. Stop debating whether grace is enough for you, whether the sacrifice of Jesus is enough for you. Repent today and come to him in faith. Declare him, confess him, your Lord. Repent and believe. Where is the lesson? Here's the lesson. Sovereign grace does not choose what is beautiful but turns what it touches into beauty. Grace, sovereign grace, does not choose what is beautiful, but it turns what it touches into beauty. Consider the joy embedded in this glorious truth, my Christian friend. Don't get over this, Christian. We are not loved because we were perfect and lovable. But even in our sinfulness, even in our rebellion, Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us in order to make us like himself. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Jesus did not wait until you became a bit more acceptable to die for you. He died for you even though and because you were utterly and supremely unacceptable before God. It has never been, it has never been about your lovability level. It has always been about Christ's sovereign grace, which is able to renew you and beautify you and to present you blameless before his presence. Ephesians 1.4. The best remedy, the best remedy against the discouragement that comes to us due to our remaining sin, is grace purely defined as sovereign. Sovereign grace. If you deserved it, then what you received was something else, but it wasn't grace. 
Grace will always and forever be a sovereign gift given to those who don't deserve it. And in keeping with this sovereign theme, we see next, sovereign election is a necessity. You guys are taking too long in listening. You're listening very slowly. <laughs> I get that word necessity from the word instrument. Instrument. Let me explain a bit more. What comes to your mind when you think of the word instrument? I would venture to say that the first thing that comes to your mind is not a living object, but rather an inanimate object. Or to say it differently, an instrument is not something that acts on its own. Rather, an instrument is something that must be acted upon. An instrument by itself does not make much of a difference. A scalpel placed on a tray is of no use unless the surgeon picks it up and puts it to work. Even though it is sharp, the scalpel is just an instrument, useless if left to, to itself. Apart from uh, knowledgeable and skillful hands, it doesn't do much good. It is necessary that an instrument be picked up in order to become useful. The bass, the guitar, the piano, they need to be played by skillful hands, otherwise they don't do much good. Now, what's the point of all this? Let me find it in my notes real quick. Now, it shouldn't surprise us then that Saul is referenced to as a chosen what? A chosen instrument. Now, just to clarify, the word instrument does not mean inactivity. Saul became one of the most active, if not the most active man for the glory of God and for the expansion of the kingdom of God on earth through the proclamation of the gospel. Rather, the word instrument means humble submission. So I say that sovereign election is a necessity because apart from sovereign election, apart from Jesus choosing us and using us, we can't do anything. Apart from sovereign election, there is no fruitfulness. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said this to the 12. Listen to, to what he said. You did not choose me, but I chose you, Jesus said, and appointed you that you should go and do what? Bear much fruit and that your fruit should abide. There is a direct connection between sovereign election and fruitfulness. Here's the lesson for us. Our usefulness and fruitfulness as Christians requires that we see ourselves as chosen instruments rather than as sovereign lords. What I mean is this. We must train ourselves to remember that we are always under lordship. You and I must train ourselves to remember that we're always under lordship. Always. How often do you remind yourself of that fact? I say this because there's a lot of bad theology out there that tells us that God is there to serve our purposes and to fulfill our carnal dreams. I mean, after all, if you are a champion, then God is there to serve you. And you have to discover the champion in you. Saul certainly saw himself as a champion. He had those carnal desires. As we read already in Galatians 1.14, he himself explains that at one point in his life, he said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Saul's aim in life was to advance in Judaism, to get ahead, to be the best at it. That was his ambition. And all of this was true until he realized, until he understood that he was but an instrument. 
an instrument and that his purpose was subservient to the purposes of another greater and mightier and worthier than himself, which brings us to our next point. Sovereign election is gloriously purposeful. Sovereign election is gloriously purposeful. Look closely to what, I, to what Jesus said to Ananias. Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name among all peoples. First, consider the kinds of people before whom Saul was to carry Christ's name. Did you notice the, the kinds of people? It says that Saul will carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I just want to ask you, who is excluded? You have the children of Israel, Gentiles, the rest of the world, and the higher people, kings, right? Kings. Now, let me just say a little bit about that. Even kings, even kings are going to hear from the mouth of Saul that there is a greater king. One who rules over all things. What a timely word. Unfortunately, there seems to be some people, Christians, who think that the purview of Jesus' lordship and authority should be confined to spiritual issues only, exclusively within the church. But this is not what Jesus said. Saul will go to kings and carry his name before kings. Why? Because Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. As one writer has said, and I quote, no more than Romans could lock up Jesus inside a sealed tomb can the church men of our day confine him to the church. If they continue to try to lock him into the church, he will shatter the church as he did the tomb, end quote. In other words, don't limit the lordship of Jesus to the church only. He is king of kings and lord of lords. This reminded me of the ministry of John Knox in Scotland and England. During much of his ministry, he interacted with actual kings and queens, bringing the word of Christ to bear upon their reigns. This got him in a lot of trouble, but he never gave up calling kings to obedience to Jesus, who is king over all. And notice also the specific calling of Saul to carry Christ's name. That statement is not confined just to words, but to all of life. It is all-encompassing. All-encompassing. He is to carry Christ's name both in words and deeds. He is not only to speak about Christ, but he is to live to the glory of Christ. The entirety of his life is now under new management, which yields the following lesson. Here's the lesson. Our lives are always subservient to the glory of Jesus. Our lives are always subservient to the glory of Jesus. We understand that Saul was called in a very unique way into a very unique role. He was the one who ended up writing almost half of the New Testament. But make no mistake, we too are called to carry Jesus' name. It was the Apostle Peter who weaved together sovereign election with Christian purpose. If you can, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 1.9. And if you can't, I'll read it to you. Listen to what it says, Peter, 1 Peter 1.9. But you are a chosen, a what? Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What's that? Sovereign election. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's that? Christian purpose. We were chosen to proclaim. And as I said, this proclamation, this carrying of Christ's name is all-encompassing, which brings us to our final point. 
which is very, very interesting. And this is not the point yet, but we are to carry Christ's name, which is all-encompassing. Encompassing. We proclaim Christ even through our suffering. Even through your suffering. And that's the final point. Sovereign election offers great consolation. I'm going to try to explain this as best as I can. Jesus said, I'm not putting these words on Jesus. This is what he said. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. It is interesting because a lot of people trying to explain the problem of suffering and they take the name of God and they try to push it away. And here the Bible tells us that he himself is saying, I will show him how much he must suffer. This is Jesus speaking. He will suffer for the sake of my name. This is an extraordinary statement. Saul's suffering will begin very, very soon. In fact, we will see Saul suffering threats of murder in just a few verses. But the question is, why did he suffer? Or better yet, where did the suffering come from? Well, let's be clear. Saul suffered not because Jesus did not know how to keep Saul from suffering, but because in his sovereignty, Jesus decreed this for Saul. Jesus did not leave Saul at the mercy of evil men or adverse circumstances. Jesus' comprehensive plan for Saul included that he suffer. But isn't, isn't Jesus good? Yes, he is both good and sovereignty, which, sovereign, which means that suffering must have a very unique place in the Christian life. So let me just give you the lesson. We should not be afraid to lay all things, even our suffering, at the feet of sovereign Jesus. Listen, my friend, if you don't do that, then where do you go? Where do you go? Listen, my friend, the only place where you and I can find rest and refuge in the midst of suffering is in the hands of a Lord who is sovereign, a God who is in charge. There are things in us, there are things in us, remaining sin, fears, idolatries, spots, and wrinkles that will one day disappear fully. Praise God for that. But in the process of making us like himself, the Lord will bring suffering in our lives to help our hands lose our grip on the things that belong to this world. Sometimes we don't even know it, but through sufferings and through trials, the Lord is purging us from certain plagues of the heart. So I want us to consider these words from Philippians chapter 1. Turn there and we will finish with this. Philippians chapter 1. And I want us to consider together the words of verse 29. And with this, we will take this truth and be done. 
for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. Let me ask you this. Is to believe in Christ a blessing? Yes. This is yes. Is to believe in Christ a blessing? It's been granted to you. It's been given to you as a blessing. For it has been granted to you this blessing that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So I ask you, if to believe in him has been granted to you and that is a blessing, what do we make of suffering? Only a heart. Let, let me, you need to take this with you. Only a heart that has been gripped by the awesome sovereignty of the Lord will look at suffering in the eye and see it as a blessing, as something divinely granted to us for our good. So I leave you with the words of John Calvin. The Christian's comfort, I say, is to know that his Lord so holds all things in his power, so rules by his authority and will, so governs by his wisdom that nothing can befall except he determine it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' suffering was sovereignly determined. So is yours. So praise God for his sovereign election. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this simple yet timely reminder that because you are sovereign indeed, all things work together for our good. I pray for those in this room who are going through great trials and great tribulations, heaviness of heart. They will know that this, not, this is not a surprise to you, that you are not trying to figure things out, but you are sovereign and that even our suffering is under your sovereign hands. And I pray for those in this room who are yet to know you savingly, who have heard the name of Jesus, but have yet to know him. I pray that you will powerfully, sovereignly bring them to faith. Open their eyes that they may see the glories of Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.